So tonight, again, if you've been keeping track, it's the fourth of my series on the Four Noble Truths, which means tonight I'll be talking about the Eightfold Path. And um, I had actually thought ahead of the retreat that I might have two talks at least to talk about this part of the teaching on the Four Noble Truths because it's so complex but just the way things have worked out, I just have one. Um, So I apologize in advance if this talk, I don't know what, I apologize in advance just for however it turns out, I don't know. Um, (laughs) But it's it's often, especially the Eightfold Path can just be like a list, and in that it's a list of lists. Each one of these often has subsections under under each one, and we could actually have taken the whole retreat and just covered the Eightfold Path and even then not do it justice. It's said that the Buddha in his 45 years of teaching basically was teaching the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and all of the teachings were different pointers on that set of practices. So it's going to be hard even taking one whole talk to, to do this, to, to do it justice. And as I said, it might seem a little like a, a list of lists at times. The good thing about that is if you space out, you can just come back in and we're on a new list and you can just <laughs> start right there. But I want to talk about it, uh, the way I view this teaching is as a journey, a spiritual journey. We talk about the eightfold path. Inherent in that is the understanding of going on a journey, being on a path. And the Buddha's teaching was often spoke about, spoken about as the gradual path or the gradual training, that there was a training that happened as we are on this spiritual journey. And it's a training of cultivation of the wholesome and purification letting go of the unwholesome, and just refining that over and over and over again. So we are on a path, whether you knew it or not. And, and often we can actually not be sure that we're on a path or know what the path is, or especially where is the path leading and where are we on that path. Uh, it can be a little confusing at times. I know for myself, um, when I gradually came onto the Dharma path, I didn't have a clue. I didn't have a clue what I was doing or where it was going or what it would mean to my life. It actually changed my life completely. I left Australia in my mid-twenties. I thought I was going to Asia for six months and that I would have a few adventures and I'd come back home and I'd just kind of resume my life when I got back. Well, that was in 1980 or so, and I've not really been back since. So you never know where these journeys will take you. I mean, I've gone back to visit, but I never went back to live. That life that I had been living just vanished. And my life became one of orienting around the Dharma and being on the Dharma path, the Dharma journey, and have never regretted that decision or those many decisions that were involved in that. And even being here on a retreat is like a journey. Doesn't it seem ages ago, ages, a lifetime, that we all gathered here on a Sunday night and looked around and said, gulp, you know, here we are, (laughs) four weeks or eight weeks, whatever you were setting yourself up for. And 
it's a kind of journey where we don't actually know where we'll end up. And it's actually good in that way because we don't want to have too many expectations. And I often say, even if you had expectations, um, you'll find your experience, even if you didn't have expectations, your experience will still be ever other than that. You know, because it's mysterious what goes on here. And each one of you has had a unique individual journey, not replicated by any other person here, no matter what has unfolded for you. And the journey that you need to be on. It's really important to remember that part too. So we have to be open to where this journey might take us. But it's also really helpful to have guideposts or, or guides or a sense, a sense of direction. So it's a subtle balancing between the openness and the directionality because otherwise you never know where you'll end up. I found this uh, story, I think actually someone sent it to me, it was an honorable mention in the Darwin Awards. Do you know the Darwin Awards? Their, their title is something like Celebrating Those Who Improve the Gene Pool by do, Removing Themselves from It. By doing something so stupid, they usually end up killing themselves. Some of them are a bit gruesome. This one is just an honorable mention. It didn't go that far. But it's about journeys and not knowing where you'll end up. After stopping for drinks at an illegal bar, a Zimbabwean bus driver found that the 20 mental patients he was supposed to be transporting from Harare to Bulawayo had escaped. Not wanting to admit his incompetence, the driver went to a nearby bus stop and offered everyone waiting there a free ride. <laughs> he then delivered the passengers to the mental hospital, telling the staff that the patients were very excitable and prone to bizarre fantasies. The deception wasn't discovered for three days. So luckily, no one in their interviews has been saying, I shouldn't be here, why am I here? I shouldn't be here. So we know that bus driver didn't deliver you here. But it can feel a bit like that sometimes, right? You know, what am I doing here? Why did I think this was a good idea? So hopefully we're not on that kind of journey. We, we do have a sense of why we're here and that even though the journey is unfolding in ways we couldn't have expected, we do have these beautiful guideposts, these, these maps, these lists, these um, this way of being held in the Buddha's teachings. And the Eightfold Path is a really significant one of those maps. And this teaching is so great because it's called a path, so we have this sense of something onward leading. But its common depiction is of a circle, a wheel with eight spokes. And so both are true. It's both onward leading, going in one direction only, as the Buddha said again and again, but also... Uh, we're held in this structure that reinforces, each, each of the facets reinforces the other. And in a wheel, obviously, there's no start and no finish. You can enter it at any point and discover all of the other facets. So that's an important way to hold this. It's not like we start at one point and then let that go and move on to the next these facets of the Eightfold Path are constantly supporting and um, reflecting back on each other and deepening as they do. And what I also love about this as um, a teaching 
is that the Buddha didn't just talk about what he was offering as a meditation practice, what one does when one goes into retreat, isolates oneself a little bit, sits down, closes one's eyes, and, and, and removes oneself from engagement. It's actually a map that gives us guidance on every aspect of our life. Certainly our meditation practice is deep in there and, and, and central, but it also talks about wisdom. And there's a whole section on ethical conduct, the sila section that includes our relationships, our speech, and our livelihood, the way we make our living, the way we support ourselves. So it encompasses every aspect of our lives and is very profound in that way, in that nothing need be or even should be left out. Everything has to be included for us to really journey on this path. It's not just about deepening in meditation. There's a shorthand that we often use for the Eightfold Path, and that's the, the basket, the three baskets of sila samadhi panya, sila ethical conduct, samadhi meditation practice, panya wisdom. So sila samadhi panya is the way this gradual training is often uh, described as being, uh, trainings in sila samadhi panya, ethical conduct, meditation, and then wisdom. But I've always found it interesting if you ever actually look at it, a list of the eight factors of the Eightfold Path, they always start with the wisdom section, and it actually goes wisdom, action, meditation. And I actually like that, that there's two you know, different ways of looking at this, again, reinforcing that there isn't a right place to start. And even in the starting with the wisdom section, what, how it's held in this cycle is we need a little bit of wisdom even to orient towards the path, even to have a sense of what might be helpful. And then that refines our ethical conduct and then we deepen in meditation. But that deepening in meditation deepens our understanding and that refines our sila. And then we deepen in meditation again. So in that way that they're all um, interweaving and supporting and reflecting on each other. Back in uh, 2009-2010, I went on a couple of pilgrimages to India. The first one I did just with Guy. The two of us traveled around together exploring the sites associated with the life, the teachings, and the death of the Buddha. And then the next year, I actually took a group of students from the program I've mentioned a couple of times, DPP, Dedicated Practitioners Program, and we all went on a pilgrimage together with this wonderful man, Shantam Seth, who organizes pilgrimages regularly. That's what he does primarily for a livelihood. And so he was very much part of our trip. And it's an amazing thing to do. I've been to India many times. I lived in India for the best part of a year at one point. But it was very different going there as a pilgrim to really steep myself and ourselves in this group with into the life of the Buddha. And it really... Um, brings the Buddha to life as a human being, not just as someone in some ancient text that can seem a little um, 
stiff or wooden at times because we're reading just transcriptions of things that were written down thousands of years ago and not even transcription, you know, they were memorized for 500 years before they were written down. So he can seem a little distant as a, as a person. But being in India really brings him alive as a human being because there are many ways in which rural India hasn't changed that much. You can still see ox carts and people tilling fields and, you know, harvesting in the ways they used to do, threshing rice and wheat, uh, the same way the descriptions in the text talk about. So there's just this sense of bringing it alive and to be in the places where the the texts say the Buddha was, and you probably know if you've read any of the suttas that it will usually start, thus have I heard, which means Ananda, his attendant, was reciting it. The Buddha was residing in Savati, or in the Jetta's Grove, or in Atapindika's Park. And then it would go on to say what the discourse was in that place. And to stand there in these places that they're pretty, pretty uh, sure were the actual places for most, the most part of where the Buddha gave these teachings. It's really very powerful. Um, I, I'm so glad I had the opportunity, was blessed enough to do that and to then read these texts and have that sense of connection. So a huge amount I could say about that so much I learnt from just being in India India is a a great teacher of equanimity and renunciation, as well as joy and happiness. Um, But I want to particularly point tonight to being in Sarnath, which is a small town um, outside of Varanasi, and it's the place where the Buddha gave his first teaching. After he became enlightened in Bodhgaya, he walked for about six weeks, and again, there's a lot of metaphors of journeys in the teachings because he walked everywhere, of course. He, he walked for weeks at a time to get to different places. So he walked six weeks from Bodhgaya to Sarnath, and there he met the five ascetics he'd previously practiced with and, and gave his first teaching, which was on the Four Noble Truths. It's called the Dhamma Chaka Pawatana Sutta, And again, here's this cycle image, setting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma. And the wheel of the Dhamma is these Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So there's a lot of, a monastery grew up in Saranath, and there's now unfortunately mainly just ruins and a few stupas that are left of what was a flourishing, flourishing Buddhist um, monastery and and town um, for, for thousands of years. But in the Sarnath Museum, they've collected some of the things because these, many of these places were destroyed in the 11th, 10th, 11th century. They've collected some of the statues and, and um, artwork. And in the Sarnath Museum is what I think is the most beautiful Buddha statue there is in the world, certainly that I've ever seen. It was built, it was made in about the 5th century. It's from this beautiful yellow golden kind of sandstone and it's it's lit very beautifully it's larger than life size it has a kind of halo around it with various beings but what's most striking is the buddha's face and whoever carved that face had access to some degree of what a buddha mind and a buddha heart is like because it just radiates serenity wisdom and compassion. There's a kind of sweetness to it that's, that's palpable, and you just want to sit there, and we did. We just plopped down and just sat there in communion with this statue. 
But as well as its face, what was also striking to me was the mudra that the Buddha was using. We often see statues with this mudra, the earth-touching mudra, that's from the night of his enlightenment where the earth bore witness to his practice and his determination. This mudra was more complex. Um, It was like this. There were two fingers pointing inward to the heart, two other fingers touching the other hand, and this this hand had a circle, again, the imagery of the circle, but was facing out. So we were really curious about this mudra and what it meant. And luckily at that time on that trip, um, an Indian friend who had been in DPP, his sister, he and his sister were traveling with us just for a few days, and she knew a lot about mudras and, and this kind of imagery. And so she told us it meant inner cultivation, outer expression. Or inner, yeah, inner cultivation, outer expression. So that really sat with me, these fingers pointing to the heart and then out of the heart. There was just a, a, a very striking... You know, and these things are rich in symbolism. So I did a bit of research, and just through my own reflection, really saw that they represented the first two factors of the path. Inner cultivation is the first path factor of right view or right understanding. And outer expression, the second path factor, is right intention or the expression of action that comes out of right view. So I can't think of these two path factors without thinking about this mudra and that, that uh, Buddha image and, and how striking it is. And so this inner cultivation, outer expression, inner wisdom, inner purification and the manifestation of that, you can also see in that um, description of the Buddha's path of tra- training as being about the wings of um, wisdom and compassion and how we need both. And it's basically saying the same, same thing. This first path factor is the wisdom one. The expression is out of compassion. So the two wings that we need. I heard recently that Thich Nhat Hanh said, and the body of the bird is mindfulness. That's what allows it to fly. But it's just helpful to have these kind of felt images of what can sometimes seem just another list. So all of these path factors are prefaced by this Pali word samma, which I'll usually uh, translate as right, because it, it has a real pointer to the wisdom of that path factor, but it doesn't mean right as in wrong, right and wrong. It means right as in perfected or onward leading, wholesome, wise or skillful. We often talk about wise um, mindfulness or wise intention. So wise is another translation. So whole whole or complete, um, leading onward on the path. So beginning with this wisdom section of wise view or understanding and wise or right intention, so the first path factor, right view, samaditi. Ditti means view. Um, there are many definitions. The Buddha talked about this. I mean, you could say it's all he talked about. It's all we're talking about is right view or right understanding. Often the most uh, one mentioned is the Four Noble Truths. So again, often you'll find in these lists there are little cyclical, circular or self-referential that, you know, the Four Noble Truths fourth is the eightfold path and the eightfold path the first path factor is the four noble truths so you know we just again 
referring back to each other. So the Four Noble Truths is central to coming into right view or right understanding. The Buddha also talked about dependent origination as being central to understanding his teachings and coming to the end of suffering. He talked about karma. Temple gave a whole talk on that the other night and the importance of that in our understanding. And then the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. If you've noticed, this is basically what we've been talking about. This whole retreat is right view. And what we're hoping happens and what is happening for you has been happening for as long as you've been on a Dhamma path is we start to align with the Dhamma view. Not in a sense of like commandments of this is what you should believe, but this um, action that happens of, you know, ehipasiko, come and see for yourself. Here are these, um, here's one way of understanding the world, a way of understanding the world. See if it's true for you. And you check it out and you say, hey, you know what? He might be onto something here. And so you refine your view out of your own understanding. So we come into alignment with the Dhamma. And Dhamma view begins to infuse our life. And so the question starts to become not, how do I bring Dhamma into my life? But how does my life become Dhamma? Or how does my life become lived in Dhamma? And so that is what has been happening here on retreat. It's been a Dhamma field, both through the teachings, the guidance, the instructions, the Q&A that we do, but also through your own practice. And we start to, and all of us are somewhere along on this journey, shift our perspective. The Dhamma view requires a shift in perspective. Kate talked about perspective the other night. It requires a change in values, a reorienting. Heather just briefly talked about this morning about happiness and the meta phrases and meta practice. And then what has to happen is a, a, a reimagining of what happiness means and what are the causes of happiness and the causes of suffering. This is a shift in perspective that has to happen. Um, for us to align with the Dhamma. Someone in an interview the other day said, you know, I finally figured it out. You guys are just saying the same thing over and over again in different ways. And I said, yep, you're right. That's what, you, what's what we're doing. And we say it in different ways because on different days and to different people, it will, you know, they'll be received differently. But it's basically the same message. Pay attention. Don't cling. You know, if we just said that over and over again, though, you'd get bored. So we say all these words and tell stories and, and try to keep you amused so that you'll listen to the Dhamma and hear that message. You know, I just thought of those two lines, pay attention, don't cling. But there are many ways you could say, you know, this essential truth of what causes suffering and what does the end of suffering look like? How do I manifest that in my life? So this is the beginning of the path, is starting to understand that, not just as a teaching, not just as a list, not just as something to believe, but as something that we experience. 
that we put to the test in our lives, here and now on retreat, but in our lives as well. And out of that right view gets shaped or formed the next path factor of wise intention. So what does the Buddha say is wise intention coming out of wise view? The Pali is samasankapa, and it's usually translated as wise intention or wise thought, though I think intention is better. Um, But it's not just the everyday intention. There are three specific areas that the Buddha said would develop as we align with the Dhamma. This is where we need to pay attention or what needs to uh, be cultivated as wise intention. And they were the intention of renunciation, the intention of goodwill, and the intention of harmlessness out of compassion. So out of wise understanding, again, of this mudra, there's the wise understanding constantly being refined, and then this, these actions. And if you look at them, they're all basically out of compassion. They're all wise ways of relating to the world and to ourselves. The first one is renunciation. And it's not something that gets a lot of press these days, certainly not good press. You know, we live in a culture of indulgence and more is better. But it's interesting, right here um, is this act of letting go, given that the second noble truth is the cause of suffering is craving or holding on. Again, these teachings uh, being iterative. So here is letting go. This is not a renunciation of deprivation, but actually of knowing and exploring for ourselves what's truly important and letting the other stuff go. And in its essential nature, it's actually a joyful practice, really of, of finding what you truly value and nourishing that, of course, even bringing passion to that but letting go of what causes suffering. Suzuki Roshi said, renunciation is not giving up the things of this world, but accepting that they go away. So again, the the wisdom is right there, that, that things are changing. Don't hold on or you'll suffer. If you let go, you'll find freedom. And so as I said, it's the opposite of clinging or attachment. There's that beautiful Zen poem, when my house burned down, I gained an unobstructed view of the moonlit sky. We never know what will happen when we let something go, what will reveal itself. If we're so tightly holding on, nothing new can come in. So this kind of renunciation is about developing a wise relationship to our lives, to our experiences, and to stuff, not one that's fearful out of clinging and, 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 and uh, this, this never-satisfied kind of mind. Um, and also recognizing that the biggest renunciation for most of us is not so much of material possessions. Most of us have gained some skill around that by this point in our lives. It's renunciation of our views and opinions. That's actually often the biggest form of suffering and that we act out in the world out of. So, you know, again, that could be a whole Dhamma talk just about that. But just to start to see what it is that we can 
let go of in a skillful way that will bring true, true happiness. These, this uh, understanding, this refinement of happiness. And for those of you who are leaving the retreat in a few days, you know, we've lived very simply here. Small room, few possessions, no menu, no takeout, you know, ordering available, not the coffee of your choice every day, all of the different kinds of renunciation. What do you pick up again? What is it that's really necessary to be happy in mind and body? It's always interesting. You leave with your little handful of possessions and go back to a house full of stuff, right? Full of stuff for most of us. Bhikkhu Bodhi says, real renunciation is not a matter of compelling ourselves to give up things still inwardly cherished, but of changing our perspective on them so they no longer bind us. Here again is that changing of perspective. So it's a natural letting go. It's not something that, you know, we have to force or push. The next of the wise intentions is that of goodwill or matter, and Heather gave a whole talk on that last night, so... I don't need to go into it too much, but just again, the centrality of metta, of goodwill in these teachings, that this is what the Buddha said, if you had wise understanding, this would be the manifestation. And for most of us, for all of us probably, to start with metta for self, how important that is. Someone's probably already used uh, this quote from the Buddha, but it's so important You can search throughout the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you are yourself. And that person is not to be found anywhere. You yourself, as much as anybody in the entire universe, deserves your love and affection. What would that actually look like? To really believe that and act out of that understanding. What stories about yourself would you have to let go of? What sense of limitation or lack would you have to see through and not believe in anymore? And to do that, not after the 10-point improvement program, not after you've changed in this and that way, but here and now, as we actually are. And to really see that this kind of acceptance is not something we do just on a whim, you know, to be nice. It's central. It's central to our practice to accept, be kind and loving to ourselves, to our experience, and then to all experience. This is really important um, in this practice, and it's pointed to, again, here in this teaching on the path. And then the last of the intentions is that of harmlessness. Actions grounded in compassion and kindness. Kate's actually going to give a whole talk on this tomorrow night, so I'm not going to go into it a lot, but just to touch on some of the important points. I've really been emphasizing in my interviews a lot this word kindness, which can seem superficial in some ways. You know, someone's just kind, or that's nice, they're kind. But if you really understand what kindness is, it's profound. And it is a compassionate act. And so to see what are the actions like when they come out of kindness. 
Well, what happens is we naturally act ethically. In the Buddhist teachings, it's called sila or ethical conduct. And the essence of that action <clears throat> is ahimsa. I love that word. It means non-harming. Ahimsa. And through ahimsa, we create safety for ourselves and for others. And I often make this reference um, to the animals here at Spirit Rock. I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm sure you have. They're different. They really are. I live in Woodacre. The deer in Woodacre do not just sort of move a few steps aside when I walk by. They're, They're frightened when they see me come, even though I'm the same person and I'm walking just as slowly because they haven't been steeped in this Dharma field. of, And a lot of it is just people walking slowly around. And what I've started to notice is not the deer, and certainly the turkeys, they're not afraid of anyone. Um, But even the little birds don't jump away as much as they do elsewhere. Have you noticed? (laughs) Even the lizards don't scuttle away quite as fast because they really feel, I have no doubt this sense of ahimsa that they're surrounded in. And so through this practice, we give others the gift of fearlessness and we give ourselves freedom from remorse. This is why these practices are so central. And again, they're, they're cyclical. They support and feed and nourish each other. And this mind that is free from remorse is more able to settle into meditation and more open to kindness. Albert Einstein said, the ideals which have lighted my way and time after time given me new courage to face life cheerfully have been kindness, beauty, and truth. Kindness, beauty, and truth. You can see all of these manifest here in this practice. So this whole section of the path is huge. Um, it, it, it is often, we can talk about it as the precepts, the five precepts, but it is particularly right speech, right action, um, the non-harming precepts, and right livelihood. So, as I said earlier, every aspect of our life is pointed to here in these teachings. It's not just being a good meditator. It's not just locking ourselves away. But as soon as we bring in speech and action and livelihood, it includes everything. So as I said before, it's not so much a matter of bringing Dharma into our lives, but our lives becoming Dharma, Dharma infusing our lives in all these different ways. The Dalai Lama has a a great book called Ethics for a New Millennium. It's kind of a one-man publishing industry and got books on every subject, but his writing is always so heartfelt. So this is what he said, uh, Ethics for a New Millennium. Consider the following. We human beings are social beings. We come into the world as a result of others' actions. We survive here in dependence on others. Whether we like it or not, there is hardly a moment of our lives when we do not benefit from others' activities. For this reason, it is hardly surprising that most of our happiness arises in the context of our relationships with others. Nor is it so remarkable that our greatest joy should come when we are motivated by concern for others. But that is not all. 
we find that not only do altruistic actions bring about happiness, but they also lessen our experience of suffering. Here I am not suggesting that the individual whose actions are motivated by the wish to bring others happiness necessarily meets with less misfortune than one who does not. Sickness, old age, and mishaps of one sort or another are the same for us all. But the sufferings which undermine our internal peace, anxiety, doubt, disappointment, these are definitely less. It is our concern for others, in our concern for others, we worry less about ourselves. When we worry less about ourselves, an experience of our own suffering is less intense. What does this tell us? Firstly, because our every action has a universal dimension, a potential impact on others' happiness, Ethics are necessary as a means to ensure that we do not harm others. Secondly, it tells us that genuine happiness consists in those spiritual qualities of love, compassion, patience, tolerance, and forgiveness, and so on. For it is these which provide both for our happiness and others' happiness. So interwoven, as we act with more sense of kindness and harmlessness, our happiness increases, others' happiness increases, there's just more happiness. This is often a really gradual and natural process. You know, we don't call them commandments, thou shalt not. The precepts are often spoken about as training precepts. They're practices, they're guidelines. I can still remember my first retreat in India. I was, you know, in my mid-twenties. I did a retreat with Goenka, S.N. Goenka, who was my first teacher. Incredibly powerful. And talk about, as I said, not having a clue. I didn't have a clue what I was getting myself in for, a 10-day retreat with, with Goenka himself. It was very intense, very painful. You know, I'd never really sat before in my life. And after a few days, they want you to sit. They call them vow hours. Sit for an hour without moving a muscle, without moving a finger or a shoulder. A lot of dukkha. But... You know, a lot of mental training was really helpful. Um, And his teachings are so powerful. But I don't actually remember any specific teachings on sila. Maybe he gave them, but I I certainly don't remember them. But when I went back from that uh, retreat, I was living in India and actually living with my younger sister who'd been traveling with me. And she later told me that after that retreat, I was nice to her for two weeks. (laughs) And I never know whether to be proud or a little humili- humbled by that. You know, is two weeks good or not good? But I wasn't consciously trying to be nice to her. Um, but there was something about, believe me, most of the time I wasn't. Um, there was something about the tenderness that comes from being on retreat that I know you're all experiencing through our sense of our own sensitivity, vulnerability, We just know that other people are experiencing that, so we want to take care. We want to support others and be kind and compassionate. So there's this natural deepening in that. And since then, of course, I've greatly refined my understanding of sila and how it is a practice both of renunciation but also of joy, particularly in the bliss of blamelessness. Just that 
not acting in a way that harms others. And seeing that the regret, the remorse that I have when I do is not worth whatever momentary energy is there in the action. And so really can just keep refining it and it becomes a protection. So we said the bliss of blamelessness is what we can enjoy. So a lot to say about sila, but I'll leave that to Kate tomorrow night. And then the last section is the section on meditation. And, you know, it's also what we've been talking about this whole month and we'll continue to talk about. So we'll just point to how it's structured in this particular set of teachings. Um, This section is called, actually, the samadhi section, not the mindfulness section. We sometimes call it the meditation section. has three parts to it right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration or right samadhi. And again, they're developmental. We need the right effort to, to keep orienting to the wholesome that develops the mindfulness and that deepens into concentration. In the, talking about right effort, it's, it's not the effort of energy. That's a virya. This is a samavayama the right effort, and I think someone talked about it here, of cultivating the wholesome and letting go or abandoning the unwholesome. And what's important in this as a teaching and why it's, you know, so central here is it is the the guidance that we need. I talked about being on a map and signposts. This is really central to this, this possibility of cultivating wholesome and letting go of unwholesome. What this shows us is this is not a passive practice. We are not doing, I hope, what I call the lump on a log practice. Oh, this is happening. Oh, I'm depressed or I'm sleepy or I'm aversive. And so I'm just with what is. Whatever it is, I'm with it. (laughs) That's not what the Buddha talked about. He said, notice when the mind is caught in the hindrances. Sometimes all we need is mindfulness. And I'll talk a little bit about that later, but mindfulness is all we need. But sometimes we need more. We need to actually guide our practice. What's important is we're not controlling, we're not having expectations or gritting our teeth and saying, it should be this way and not that way. But we're guiding. It's a bit like having a GPS. You know, she says, turn left at the next street, and you know there's a better way to go. And so you keep going the way you want. And she goes, recalculating. It's like disappointed you didn't listen to me. But you know there's a better way to go. So you trust that. But you take the guidance when you need it. These signposts are there. And so we need to really recognize this possibility of letting go of the habits that cause us suffering, that bring limitation or contraction, and cultivating these beautiful states. And we can do that. This is central in this path of cultivation and purification. So the more that we do that, and the foundation of that is mindfulness, samasati, right or wise mindfulness. I'm always trying to think of what my current favorite definition of mindfulness is, and at the moment I'm liking being available for experience. Something about being available, not preoccupied, 
not lost, but actually present. A simple definition is just knowing what's happening and knowing that you know. And that doesn't have to be, you know, really heavy-handed, but just there's some awareness in the awareness. It's not just everyday mindfulness, samasati. I like Larry Rosenberg's descriptions of mindfulness from breath by breath. He says, mindfulness is often likened to a mirror. It simply reflects what is there. It is not a process of thinking. It is preconceptual before thought. The only time that mindfulness can happen is in the present moment. If you are thinking of the past, that is memory. Mindfulness is unbiased. It is not for or against anything. Mindfulness has no goal other than the seeing itself. It isn't detached. It is a form of participation. One word that I have personally come to associate with mindful living is intimacy. We use that word a few times. The great 13th century Japanese Zen teacher Dogen was once asked, what is the awakened mind? And he answered, the mind that is intimate with all things. The task of mindfulness is to be intimate with experience. But this mindfulness in being wise mindfulness actually deepens from that. Buddha Dasa talked about satipanya, mindfulness wisdom. True mindfulness has wisdom in it. It naturally lets go of what brings suffering and cultivates what brings happiness. The natural tendency of mindfulness is to let go of the unwholesome and cultivate the wholesome. But we have to be paying attention to notice that, to actually notice this is suffering and this is freedom. Otherwise, we're just caught in our habitual mind states and patterns. So we have to be paying attention. And if we are, it has that natural tendency. Utejaniya says that the real value of mindfulness is not in getting results like bliss and peace, however enjoyable they may be. The real value of meditation is the actual process of being aware and understanding what is happening. The process is important, not the result. Instead of complaining about what is or is not happening, you should appreciate that you are aware, regardless of what you are aware of and learn from it. Awareness alone is not enough. Having a desire to really understand what is going on is so much more important than just trying to be aware. We practice mindfulness meditation because we want to understand. And here we are back at the beginning of the path, wise understanding, that the clear seeing through the mindfulness shines the light on the truth of things, which enables wise understanding to deepen. Again, this iterative process that happens again and again. As we deepen in the mindfulness, this quality of mind develops called samadhi. We usually translate as concentration, wise concentration. I prefer terms like non-distraction or unification of mind, collectedness of mind. Because it's not talking about a narrow, tight focus, but really a stable mind, a mind that can stay connected to its experience. And traditionally, in this, this teaching, this list, 
It's defined as the four jhanas, the four form jhanas, the first four jhanas. We've talked a little bit about jhana and absorption. It's a process that can happen as we deepen in tranquility meditation and have the intention towards this can be cultivated. But there has been a debate that's been going on for hundreds, if not thousands of years, about whether jhana is essential or not. It's throughout the suttas. If you read any of the texts, the Buddha talks again and again about jhana. But there are also, even in the time of the Buddha, references to people coming to awakening without jhana practice. You know, I mentioned before how many people almost spontaneously awoke just through hearing the Dhamma. And there's also teachers and teachings that just taught what they call the dry path or the insight path that didn't go through jhana. And to this day, and for you know, many hundreds of years, there have been teachers and traditions of which our practice here, um, even in the, the, the two aspects of it, the Burmese through Mahasi Sayadaw and Upandita and the Thai forest tradition that have not emphasized jhana and don't see it as necessary. What certainly Upandita would say is you just need enough concentration. And that enough concentration he would define as access or neighborhood concentration. It's called access because it's access or neighborhood because it's near jhana. But in that kind of concentration, the mind is collected. It's not disturbed by the hindrances. It's very uh, continuous, but it hasn't sunk into absorption. And that's actually the kind of mind that can open to insight. And so that's what we teach. Personally, I really value the practice and the teaching of jhana and like to teach it to people, but it doesn't suit everyone. Um, It takes a long time to develop. So, um, you know, we just find our way with that. I teach a concentration retreat every year with Philip Moffat and other teachers because we value the teachings on jhana and concentration. So it can be an important part of people's path, but it's not necessary. What we teach is called kanika samadhi, moment-to-moment concentration, where even though the objects are changing, if the mindfulness becomes relatively continuous, there can be this samadhi that develops that's penetrating enough to reveal the truth of things, and that's what we need to cultivate. And the proximate cause for any kind of concentration is sukha, or contentment. It's a trap always that if we want to get concentrated, we end up striving. And you can read all the texts you like, and you will not find striving as a proximate cause for concentration. Right effort, yes, but not striving. And so to really find this balance of mind um, in our practice, this balance of factors, where yes, we need some sense of the mind really settling so it can penetrate in the way that I've been talking about. Um, But not to fixate on concentration and certainly not to fixate on, you know, I've got to hang on to the breath and everything else is a distraction. Because insight comes through noticing changing experience, having the mind be, as I said, available for experience. So there's got to be this balancing all the time of these different qualities um, in the body and especially in the mind so that we notice when we're caught, when we're struggling, when we're suffering, when the hindrances are present. And we also notice 
the beautiful states that hopefully you've had, I'm sure you've all had experience of, of gratitude or calm or joy or acceptance or equanimity or metta or compassion. So we need to recognize those as we say over and over again. These beautiful states of, of goodwill, of kindness. And again, we've come back to the other path factor of intention. All of our practice comes out of intention. All of our action, all of our lives come out of intention. And so to end with speaking about intention, what are we doing this for? This is a great question to ask on a regular basis. And not that you have to come up with an answer that's a good answer, but just to ask the question so you keep reorienting. What are the values that I'm holding that I feel are important? What are the signposts for me on this path? You know, not, not again in some fixed way, but just, is there more kindness? Is there more happiness? Is there more acceptance? We can start to track that for ourselves very clearly, especially on a long retreat like this where we really are with the mind in this ongoing way. And so we start to see that the journey is as important as the goal. As Sadhu Tejaniya says, the process is just as important, not wanting to get to some particular place, but having this sense of being on a journey. But the paradox is, on this journey, the destination is unknowable from this place. We can have an intimation of it. We use that term, the the whiff, the smell, the, the taste of awakening. But until we know it, as a Buddha knows it, we don't know the mind of a Buddha over in our heart. So we just have these tastes and these guideline, these guideposts, these signposts, and we follow them. But we do that by being more fully here and now, more fully in the moment, without the layers of projection and filters, not driven by our hopes and fears, but actually by these deeper values, these deeper intentions of kindness and goodwill and renunciation. And we deepen in this sense of trust and faith that there is a path. It's been trodden on by millions of people before us. The way, I was going to say, is clear, sometimes perhaps not, but certainly there are footsteps ahead of us that we can follow. We're not doing this alone. And so we start to trust that. The faith not just in something abstract, but our own direct experience. And then as T.S. Eliot says, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Know the place for the first time. This place, this mind, this body. Let's just sit and let the words... Settle into silence.
Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.